Well, hello there. It's time again for Florida Roundtable. I am Melissa Fox. How are you? Got a good show planned for you today. Lots to talk about, including resetting your screen time rules for the kids. Oh, yeah. You know, they got away with a lot during the pandemic and the lockdowns. We're going to discuss how we can get that reined back in. And guess what, asthma patients? There's hope. Oh, yes. We're going to talk about a study going on and a few things they're doing in rural areas to help out asthma patients, including kids. Also, kids and COVID. Uh Apparently, this new variant is highly contagious and kids are getting it. So we'll talk about that. And... There's a new report out there about neuroscience saying that we like videos better than texts. I guess we'll explore it coming up next. Welcome to the Florida Roundtable. I'm Melissa Fox. Research published recently in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in practice. You know, I have hard with the trouble with the big words. Uh, The Pediatric Asthma Program. Improved physicians' adherence to current guidelines, which basically means what? I don't know. I don't know. I got no idea. But I do know that the guy on the phone, Dr. Bruce Bender, can answer and explain all of this for me. So I really tried. I I couldn't even get through the word immunology. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, by the way, uh, yeah, we keep it nice and light, even if we talk about heavy topics. So just in case you were wondering. So tell me a little bit about this research and how it is showing promise for asthma patients. So our research, our project, really focuses on patients with asthma living in rural settings. You know, there's about 6 million people in the United States who have asthma and who live in a rural place as defined by the United States Department of Agriculture. And those patients sometimes have difficulty accessing medical care, and typically they really don't have easy access to asthma experts. And asthma experts would include allergists and pulmonologists. So they need to get that care from their family physician. And a lot of times family physicians aren't quite up to speed with the best, most current evidence-based guidelines. So we started this program almost 15 years ago to go out into rural settings and train primary care providers how to take care of asthma, and in particular, kids with asthma, because this is the number one chronic health condition among children, and nearly 10% of children have asthma. This is the Asthma Toolkit Boot Camp, and it's designed to go into rural areas and train those primary care providers. What's key to this is that we're not telling those providers who live out in rural Colorado or rural Idaho or rural Florida, we're not telling them, come in the city and sit down and we'll give you some lectures. We go out to them. So it's a four-part sequence. We first meet with them in their community, sit down, answer questions, find out what their concerns are, and explain the program. Then we have them take a fairly short, about a 90-minute online course on how to manage asthma, how to diagnose, how to measure it, uh, how to treat it appropriately. Uh, And then we go to them, and this is the boot camp. We spend an intense day with them, training them, the physicians, the nurses, the physician assistants, anybody who might be involved in the care of patients with asthma. And in the middle of this training, we introduce the spirometer. So the spirometer is a device that's used to measure lungs function. It's part of the 
best guidelines. It's recommended for all patients with asthma. A physician can listen to a patient's lungs with a stethoscope. We all experience that. But a spirometer is different. It actually accurately measures how well your lungs are working. And the information from the spirometer can guide important decisions about what medication and how much medication and how long the patient should be treated. So we train them to use the spirometer to interpret the results, and we make them do it again and again and again. That's the boot camp part. And then the next part, the last part, is we send a trainer back into each individual practice about a month to two months after this boot camp to answer questions, to practice spirometry, and help them build a standard asthma visit. So we've been doing this for almost 15 years. In the last segment of rural Colorado, we were able to measure outcomes in a way that we hadn't been able to previously. And that's because we were working with the Colorado Medicaid Accountable Care Collaborative. So let me explain what that is. That's the organization that, ma ma that manages Medicaid in that southwest section of Colorado. So now we were able to look at what happens to patients in these practices. About half of the patients in rural Colorado are on Medicaid. And we found a significant reduction following the program in the year that followed, a 10% reduction in emergency department visits, a 35% reduction in hospitalizations for asthma, and a 29% decrease in the use of oral steroids. So oral steroids are very effective, but they have side effects. So we want kids to be under good control so they don't need to take these more powerful medications. We're talking with Dr. Bruce Bender. We're going to take a quick break. Be right back. You're listening to the Florida Roundtable on the Florida Talk and Entertainment Network. Welcome back to the Florida Roundtable. We're in the middle of a conversation here talking about hope for asthma patients. A lot of testing, boot camps, and such were done in Colorado by Dr. Bruce Bender and company. Basically, you guys went out into rural areas and taught people a better way of testing for asthma using a spirometer, which I am very familiar with. I am a lung clinic patient myself, had a little mild COPD. Anyway, if you wouldn't mind, Dr. Bender, just kind of refreshing us on what you guys did and how it was implemented. And have you been doing this for quite some time, or is this new research? So we've been doing this for almost 15 years. In the last segment of rural Colorado, we were able to measure outcomes in a way that we hadn't been able to previously. And that's because we were working with the Colorado Medicaid Accountable Care Collaborative. So let me explain what that is. That's the organization that, ma ma that manages Medicaid in that southwest section of Colorado. And that improvement, we believe, was supported by our review of electronic and paper medical records. We found that those providers in the practices we trained were following the elements of evidence-based guidelines. That includes using spirometry, providing the patient with an asthma action plan. An asthma action plan is a written plan that we send home with the families that tell them, tells them exactly which medication should be given and what to do if your child's asthma starts to get worse. So all of that adds up to, we believe this is an effective way to get primary care physicians up to speed, better managing kids with asthma. 
We're talking with Dr. Bruce Bender. He's the co-director of the Center for Health Promotion at the National Jewish Health. And these studies are phenomenal. Now, I am very familiar with the spirometer because I am a lung patient, got a little mild COPD and also have asthma. And I've done the spirometer test things a lot. It surprises me that some of the common practices are not familiar with it. I mean, it's basically an apparatus that measures the volume of air inspired and expired by the lungs. And just listening to your chest with the uh, stethoscope, that, that, I mean, it's great. You can hear if you're breathing and hear if there's a rattle, but it really doesn't register how much you're taking in or exhaling. So this is good that you're getting this out there. Um, it identify doesn't the spirometer identify a couple of different things, whether there's obstruction or restriction in the lungs as well? That's exactly right. And you're, I'm glad you had that experience. Not glad you've had COPD, yeah, but well. glad you've had the experience because you know what I'm talking about. And we use the same spirometer for COPD, which is, of course, usually adults, as we do with asthma, although the interpretation of it is a little different. But it's a very refined measure. You know from your experience that it also depends on the patient being able to blow hard into this device. It's a bit of work, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes, it is. And they make you do it a couple of times to get a proper reading. It's sort of like a bowling <laughs> yeah. score. You know, you got to play three strings before they can come out with an average. Exactly right. And you know the person giving it has to know how to coach the patient because they're going to tell you to blow into this as hard as you can. And if you don't know how to administer it appropriately, you're not going to get an accurate reading. Many private, many independent family practice physicians and pediatricians may have a spirometer, but over time, nobody's quite sure how to use it correctly. And again, if you're not using it correctly, then you're not going to get good, helpful results. We chose a spirometer called the easy one because it doesn't need to be daily recalibrated. Most spirometers need to go through this recalibration. Well, if you're a rural primary care physician, you don't really have the staff and the time to go and reset this every day. The easy one doesn't need to be recalibrated. It's pretty easy to use. In the grants that we write, we get nonprofit grants that allow us to do this. In the grants we write, we're able to purchase a spirometer for every practice. So we give them one of these spirometers. We give them a printer to go with it. We teach them to use it, and it makes a huge difference. Oh, it sounds fantastic. Now, I heard you, and I know this, again, from personal experience, you mentioned that the uh, the abuterols, the rescue inhalers, they're steroid-based, which is not a good thing. I understand it's a rescue inhaler. It will stimulate you, but that's key word right there, stimulate. I can't use them at night because I can't go to sleep. I'd rather uh. cough and choke, you know? <laughs> So what kind of side effects do these kids experience? And, and you're looking at an alternative here. So just explain that if you could, Dr. Bender. Well, if treated appropriately, most kids will not have side effects. And you know for asthma, there's two kinds of medication. So let's spend just a minute talking about that. There's rescue medication, which includes albuterol. And we want patients to have that in case they suddenly have trouble breathing maybe not just before bed, as you've indicated. Yeah. But if, let's say, a child's going to be participating in a high school sport and they're having a little difficulty breathing, this is a medication you need only when you use it, or you use it only when you need it. Right. The other kind of medication is a controller medication. That's usually an inhaled medication, like an inhaled steroid, 
And that actually needs to be used every single day to, to keep control of the inflama- inflammation. The inhaled steroid is very different than the oral steroid. The most common one is prednisone. And the inhaled steroid doesn't have many side effects, a few. The oral steroid, if used a lot, can have serious side effects. So the better we are at teaching patients to use the inhaled medication, the less often they'll need the oral steroid. So much of this is about educating the patient, but the provider has to have a very good understanding of the medication before they can teach the patient. Oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I've also heard, um, like, the Flonase products, and I, I can't remember the, the pharmaceutical name, but that inhale the up-the-nose deal, bad idea. Whether it's asthma or any sort of sinus situation, the worst thing you want to do is stall out your lungs or your sinus or adenoids or anything from producing and getting out, you know, kicking it out of your system. So all those things are, are kind of dangerous. They dry out your nose and, and your sinuses, and the same thing can happen to your lungs, if I'm not mistaken, with regards to overuse of the abuterol, things that don't let the natural process work. So let me, let me comment on that. You're bringing up an important point, which is there are other conditions that make asthma worse, and actually sinus disease can make asthma worse. So you do want to treat sinus disease carefully. One of the things we teach patients to do here is what's called a saline rinse. Nobody loves this, but it's, a, it's warm water and salt in a solution that rinses the sinuses out. Now, the saline is very safe. It maintains a natural balance in the sinuses, helps get some of the mucus out without drying out and annoying those sinuses, which you're right, is very important. In Colorado, where I am, the air is very dry, so we have more sinus trouble. In a humid climate, more humid climate like Florida, there is actually less sinus disease. There are other problems with humidity, but the humidity actually helps the sinuses. Right. We actually have more allergens in the air here, and with our pollution index, it's more allergies are about 10 and 11 most days. But um, now you mentioned something, and I, I think it just slid right past me, and now I've forgotten it. It'll come back at some point or another. Um, but when we were talking about sinuses, and I know people do this neti pot thing where they pour the water. Now, you've got to leave some of the natural stuff in your sinuses and adenoids. You don't want to just clear them all out of everything. That would be wrong. Well, you do want to get some of that sticky mucus out of your sinuses without without tipping the balance. You want a natural balance in there, but you do want to get the mucus out because it gets stuck in there and then it's not helping. And that's those, the neti pot that you mentioned, that mm-hmm. kind of solution is quite safe to use and some people use it daily uh, because there's nothing more miserable, and I think you reference this, yeah. than going to bed or trying to get through the day with this pressure in your sinuses that feels awful. And when people feel that way, they also get brain fog. Now, we think of brain fog as COVID-19, right? Mm. But really uh, uh, congested sinuses also can create brain fog. So we want to take care of that. 
Most definitely. We're talking to Dr. Bruce Bender, and he has come together with this toolkit for the boot camp. And you'd think it was for the regular average Joe, but no, it's not for the patients. It's actually to train the physicians, the nurses, the primary care folks that are seeing pediatric patients. Right now, you've been working in the southwest Colorado area, but the information that you guys are gleaning from this is that these people need better information in order to treat asthma, and you're giving it to them. So this is a great situation. Will you be reaching out further than just Colorado uh, to teach your physicians and such in the in the rural areas? Well, we are. In fact, in 2017, we received an $8.2 million grant from the National Institutes of Health to take this on to the Navajo Nation. Navajo Nation is the largest uh, tribal property in the United States. It's actually the largest Native American tribe in the United States, and they have a lot of problems with asthma. The Indian Health Service is quite good, but again, they lack the specialists such as allergists and pulmonologists. We're in there on the Navajo Nation teaching the healthcare providers how to take care of kids with asthma, and at the same time, we're working in the schools on the Navajo Reservation to teach kids and adults more about asthma so it's better understood and so they know what to do to take care of those kids. This is perfect. I'm so glad you're getting the information out there. And it it really is important because a lot of people didn't even realize what asthma was until the late 80s. And all of a sudden, it started to become more prominent. People were realizing, you know, these kids are having little issues breathing. And finally, research is done. And, and then there's Dr. Bender. He's handled it. He's got it figured out. And he's teaching others. And, and I, I appreciate that very much, Dr. Bender. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And thanks for joining us today on the Florida Roundtable. Is there anywhere where our folks and listeners can go to find more information about these tests and the toolkit? Well, you can go on to the National Jewish Health website. I should mention National Jewish Health in Denver. We're a medical center that, among other things, specializes in the care of patients with respiratory disease or lung diseases. So our website, but also the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute or NHLBI, has a tremendous amount of information about asthma and most recent findings. And they're a very authoritative source. Fantastic. Well, folks, just go ahead and head over there. Dr. Bruce Bender, thank you for joining us today and sharing your expertise on the Florida Roundtable. My pleasure. You know, everyone's talking about COVID, COVID, coronavirus, this, Delta variant, that. And I think we're forgetting about influenza. Now, you may not think of the flu as a serious disease, and frankly, it's been forgotten about in the narrative as of late. But the flu is a serious disease. Complications can lead to severe illness, hospitalization, even death. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommend everyone six months and older get a flu vaccine every year. Vaccines are available at doctors' offices, pharmacies, and your local health department. Protect yourself and your loved ones this flu season and get a flu shot today. It's the Florida Roundtable. I am Melissa Fox. And with me now, Jenna Wheeler. She's from the Orlando Health Honor. I can never say Arnold Palmer. I don't know why. Uh, Maybe you're better at it, Jenna. The uh, Orlando Health Arnold Palmer hospital for children and on the tablet right now i'm seeing it says that we should be resetting some screen time rules for our kids 
post-pandemic. Welcome to the show, Jenna. Tell us what's going on. Well, thanks so much for having me. Um, I think this is definitely a topic that's coming up now. You know, this last year, year and a half of our lives have been so much different than prior. And I think some of us, you know, myself as a parent as well, have probably let screen time rules go a little bit just as we're all trying to get through the workday and get through life and, and try to make some changes and support our kids. But now that we're getting to a new school year, now that, you know, life is, is settling a little bit, I think it's important to start focusing on these issues again and screen time and our kids being a big issue. Most definitely. I think it kind of got out of hand, not just screen time, but, uh, you know, plopping the kids down in front of the television or the computer during the pandemic was like a catch-all to the point where parents started noticing, and correct me if I'm wrong, British accents because the kids are watching so much Peppa Pig. I have heard that. I've heard of, you know, all kinds of different role-playing and accents and, and different things coming out that, you know, we kind of laugh at as we hear about it. But it really, when you stop to think of it, if your kids are starting to take on those different personas and voices and such, while it can be cute and funny, it also kind of tells you how much they really must be taking in and screens and social media and content if it's making this much of an impact in their lives. Most definitely. So we're going to offer some tips for you parents out there to wean your kids off of the screens. So what's the first step that we would do, Jenna, to get this together and say, look, we need to sit down. How do we do this? How do we start with this? I think the biggest thing is it's having a conversation. If you all of a sudden just decide, you know, after kind of letting your kids use as much screen time as they want to, as much as you need them to, to be able to get through your day. And now all of a sudden you say, hey, we're going to stop this. We're going to go cold turkey. No more screens. It's not going to work. It's going to be met with a lot of resistance. There's going to be a lot of, you know, arguments within the home, things that are going to put stress on both sides of the table, the kids and the parents. I think the biggest thing right now is to sit down with your kids and say, hey, you know, what are you doing on your screens? What's important to you? What are you learning? What content are you logging on to? Have a discussion and find areas to say, you know what, that seems like a really great, you know, new educational thing that you're exploring, or that seems like a new hobby you've picked up. Why don't we limit that to, say, an hour a day? But this area over here doesn't really seem to be giving you anything. So why don't we pull that back and spend an extra 30 minutes or 60 minutes outside? Or you're doing something different, something as a family where everyone in the family puts their screens down, not just the kids. So we're talking to Dr. Jenna Wheeler. She's a pediatric critical care physician with Orlando Health Arnold Palmer Hospital for Children. I have to say it slowly. It's the only way I can get the words together. It is, but I also have a Massachusetts accent, so ours are just off the table. Um, But uh, for the past year, my friends, a year and a half even, these kids have been on the tablets, the computers, their cell phones, learning, socializing, and seeing a lot more entertainment than ever before. And there was no way that parents could enforce the screen time rules, especially during the pandemic. But now things are kind of easing up a little bit. I know there's some scares out there about COVID resurging. But more importantly, we've got to pull these kids out from in front of those screens. And, and, and Dr. Wheeler, I think that you have so far given us a great idea of how to sit down with the family and talk about what they're watching and what they're doing and what fits. But... You do want to say that screen time, though, 
is not a one-size-fits-all situation. It, it, it really does have to do with your family and the needs there. Is that correct? It really does. You know, there's no way to say, you know, it would be nice if we had something where we said, you know, X number of hours for every family is going to look perfect. But it just doesn't work that way. You know, every family structure is different. The needs of the parents, the needs of the kids, the way kids learn best, what kids' environment is. You know, there's some kids, unfortunately, that aren't in environments where they can safely go outside. And so families use screen time to actually keep their kid in a safer environment. And so I think we have to factor in all of those things. But with that said, focus on what are your goals of screen time? What are the goals of the content that your kids are seeing? And then how can you also make sure that they're getting adequate time for sleep? As we move back into school, they're going to need adequate time for homework, making sure they're getting time for recreation, for exercise. And like I said, it it goes beyond just the kids. You know, I myself find at times I'm on my screen too much and I justify it with work and things like that. But I think it's a good reminder for if we're asking our kids to put down their screens, let's all put down our screens. Even if it's 30 minutes where we say no one in this household has a screen in front of them outside of an emergency, that's a time to really connect with your kids. Find out what they're learning, what they're seeing. Let them learn about you. And hopefully that kind of helps you as a family It encourages you to be off your screen and to really be interacting. Oh, these are all great ideas, Dr. Wheeler. We're talking with Dr. Jenna Wheeler. She's from Orlando Regional Health and the Arnold uh, Palmer Hospital for Children out there in uh, Central Florida. And it's very important that we start to back our kids off the screen time for many reasons. Mostly, I see it as it's, uh, it's kind of a difficult thing for the kids is seeing all this all day all the stuff that they have access to on these pads or on their computer screens, a lot of a lot of this is invading their their playtime or their sleep or even meal times. Now I know when I was growing up there were no computers. Uh, what well, there were computers, but they were housed in one huge you know room. They were big things, not handheld for certain. But we even sat down for the family meal at dinner time, and no phone calls were allowed at all. If the phone rang, it rang until that person hung up. For, for lack of trying to get it, there was there was none of that. You know, it was all a discussion of what happened uh, during your day. How was school? What are you learning? How'd you do on your test? There was that, and I I so hope that families can get back to that. And and Dr. Wheeler, I think you're you're heading in the right direction with your advice here. It's nice to see this shift back to just kind of daily topics and things about our kids, their education, their well-being, their recreation, and to start shifting that focus, especially as a new school year starts, to really see how. We can make life normal again for our kids and to really support them through some of these difficult times. So if you had, in a perfect world, Dr. Wheeler, how, uh, do you have children? I do. Okay. How do you, in your perfect world, deal with them and screen time? Just for fun, give us a little peek into the duck's world. I mean, I will be the first to say that my daughter has way too much screen time. <laughs> uh, again, it's, awesome. you know, it's juggling myself working, my husband working, you know, or her being at home, balancing all of those things. But I, I think the thing that we try to do as a family is try to know what she's doing on there. I know the names of more influencers and, and different bloggers and things than I ever thought that I would because that's her world. And it lets me kind of in there to see what she's doing and see the videos that she's putting together. And, you know, then it's just the encouragement of, hey, like, go outside and play with your friends or, you know, let's go take a bike ride and things like that to kind of really try to balance it. And, you know, and and having that honest moment when she looks at me and she's like, you're on your screen. And I say, you know what, you're right. It's time that, you know, we all kind of put this down for a little bit. So I think it's, it's helpful to kind of keep each other in check and have that accountability as a family and 
just really be able to have that open communication. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I am the worst at it. And like you, I make excuses to validate why I'm on my phone. And more times than not, I shouldn't be on it. I shouldn't be worried about work stuff when I'm not at work. I shouldn't be checking this or that or the other thing. But it, it keeps happening. So we, I think we all, not just kids, I think we all need to take a break here or there. Like you said, put it down, everyone in the house. Put it down for a half hour. You know, have a phone-free time frame where everybody just cuts down all the electronics and you actually have a face-to-face with people in the family. Wouldn't that be golden? I think that would be great. And I really do think that we would find if we do that more and more, that the 30 minutes turns into 45 minutes, which turns into 60 minutes. And that time expands when we remember how to interact face to face instead of through a device. I just got an email from a friend of mine who knows I'm doing this uh, show with you in this segment. And she said, I left my house without my phone. Two hours later, I realized it that I didn't have my phone. And I can't figure out if I'm mad at myself for losing my phone and leaving it home or for being so attached to it that it freaked me out when I realized I didn't have it with me. You know, I would take that as a proud moment of two hours of the day that you were able to focus on other things, notice the sights around you. And, you know, we should all use that as a reminder to put those phones down and be able to step away. Most definitely. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Dr. Wheeler. What uh, what made you decide to be in pediatric critical care? Hmm? I had some illnesses myself as a child, and so I always kind of grew up in the medical community and really realized that, you know, being a kid who's sick and having to see doctors and those things, it's different. Kids aren't just little adults. And I wanted to be able to be on the other side and be able to help kids and be able to you know, help their families, too, through kind of some difficult situations and be able to just have fun at work. I mean, I, I work in a job where we can blow bubbles and play with Play-Doh in, in the middle of, you know, critically ill kids. It's, it's a lot of fun. There's definitely, you know, trials that come with that, but sure. it's great to see how well kids do and how, you know, happy their families are when we can put their kids back in their arms and they can take them home safely. Oh, aren't you awesome? We've been talking to Dr. Jenna Wheeler. She's a pediatric critical care physician at the Orlando Health Arnold Palmer Hospital for Children here in Orlando, Florida. Thank you so much for helping us learn how to kind of reset the screen time rules for our kids and, well, frankly, for ourselves. (laughs) Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Welcome back to the Florida Roundtable. Next up, a very important neuroscience. Oh, oh, no, no, wait, no, stay, stay. Seriously, this is interesting as all heck. You know, the messages, the the text messages and all that you get at work and at home. Well, apparently, by using neuroscience and biometric tools, participants in a study told us that there's a difference between video and text messages. And here to explain it now is Dr. Carmen Simon. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us today on the Florida Roundtable. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me. And um, our viewers uh, are going to enjoy hearing about this study. We used biometric tools such as EEG, GSR, and eye tracking. And these are tools that allow us to see what happens in the brain the millisecond that it happens. So in our study specifically, we're looking to see what happens in the brain when somebody is reading a text-based email compared to what happens when somebody is viewing a video-based email. Mm. 
So what did you find out? I'm excited to hear this myself. Yes, so were we. When we were comparing the two, we noted that video-based emails put people in a more positive state of mind because, by contrast, text-based emails tended to put people in a negative state of mind and uh, in a state of um, annoyance. I'm sure you can relate to this state when you're seeing your uh, business inbox. So by contrast, we noted a positive state of mind when it came to video-based messages. We also noted more motivation to act on the messages that people were viewing and also less fatigue. I'm sure that you can relate to the fact that these days people are reporting more fatigue when it comes to virtual interactions. Almost definitely. I mean, the pandemic, basically, with Zoom meetings and everything that came up out of that, um, yeah, there was a lot of change and it was thrust on us pretty quickly. It had been in the works for a while, I'm pretty sure, Carmen, but, you know, it just all of a sudden it was, boom, we're meeting and we're virtually doing this and everybody looked good, at least from the waist up, because you don't know who's looking. And <laughs> and and you think it'll ever go back to the way it was pre-pandemic, where we actually start face-to-facing again? Well, it's, you're right. It's no secret that um, video conferencing, for instance, has uh, skyrocketed. And uh, even though it'll be hard to fully go back to the way we were, the good news is that through this change, the brain has gotten more adjusted to how it reacts to being on camera. People are a bit more comfortable using video, and they have started using it for different purposes, like uh, not just video conferencing, but creating and sharing video-based messages at work and personally. So we imagine that in a post-pandemic era, this video usage will uh, continue in the way that we communicate and we connect with one another. Ah. So what, what, did you find out why our email inbox burns us out? Is there anything in particular, not just the video, but the, you're saying that the words mess things up for everybody, make you depressed? What happens? Well, when we tend to read more text-based messages, which are associated perhaps with some longer sentences, longer paragraphs, the brain experiences a heavier cognitive workload. So a video-based message can offer us an escape from that uh, cognitive workload. We're also noted that um, when you're processing video messages, you're more likely to be looking at something that is created in a highly compact, comprehensible way, quite often including pictures and motion and faces and evolutionarily the brain is drawn to those that's how the brain works the study is awesome i mean it's a one-of-a-kind deal here it is a unique study because we are able to use these tools with uh, business-to-business audiences and imagine that as somebody is viewing a text-based message or a video-based message they're wearing this gear and the gear looks like a cap the eeg cap has some electrodes that get distributed over the scalp The eye tracking device enables us to look where people are looking and to see whether they are drawn to a specific area on the screen and how often they return to that stimulus. We also use a device called GSR. You see what happens when you're looking at something that's a bit more exciting, your skin conductivity changes and we can capture that the millisecond when that happens. So that's how we can make assertions such as video puts us in a positive state of mind, there is less fatigue, there is more attention, and as a result, by the way, people are also more likely to remember your message more so than in a text-based format. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, I've learned a lot today, Dr. Simon. I really appreciate you spending a moment with us on the Florida Roundtable. Again, Dr. Carmen Simon, Chief Science Officer at Corporate Visions. You can uh, download it at vidyard.com, and that is V-I-D-Y-A-R-D.com.
Thank you so much for joining us today. And what a great study. So much information to digest. Thanks again, Dr. Simon. Thank you for inviting me. And there's that. Check, check, check. Okay, Wayne, um, let's just see what happens. Wow, that sounds really freaky. All right. And whenever you're ready, here we go. It's the Florida Roundtable. I am Melissa Fox. And yeah, we're always talking about something with COVID nowadays. And well, we were talking about kids and post-pandemic, but I'm not sure that that's actually in the right terminology now. We're kind of getting a spike. So when we talk about the kids, I have brought in Wayne Bracken. He's the CEO of Kids Medical Services. COVID and kids, welcome, Wayne. How are you? As good as can be expected. <laughs> Fair enough. So tell us a little bit about what's going on with regards to kids and the COVID-19 virus. Uh, so, you know, obviously we all know that this, uh, this, this very severe spike is going on uh, with, with, with Delta. Um, and that is, of course, impacting every hospital, every community, uh, all of the doctors, nurses, and other providers. Um, I, I, I feel like um, the thing that's that's different this time is that it does seem to be having an impact on children. I know we want to talk about the pediatrics, but I want to talk a little bit about you and these thousands of employees that you helped out during Hurricane Irma. Can you explain that situation just a little bit for us? Yeah, I, I um, so the, so the good news about all of us living in Florida is that we are experienced and and dealing with um, disasters. And so I think as, as you really reflect on it um, all over the state, uh, people who've lived here for any period of time or were born and raised here have worked through some, some pretty major uh, significantly dangerous uh, hurricanes. And, the, those lessons uh, apply to every kind of a disaster, including COVID. Um, I think that um, I think that in, in South Florida, in particular, um, most of the hospitals, um, uh, their emergency preparedness and disaster recovery plans were pretty readily adapted to to this COVID circumstance. Now, the big difference is, of course, that you you, you, you pretty much see a hurricane coming. You have time to get ready. Right. It uh, it doesn't last that long, and then and then it's the aftermath. The the, the thing with this is um, it just goes on and on, and and um, I think right now, just like with hurricanes, sometimes you see see a, a, a kind of a post traumatic stress uh, uh, syndrome with with people when hurricanes would come around if they'd been through a bad one, and and it kind of feels like that now. This resurgence has had a real uh, a tough uh, impact on um, the healthcare workers who've been already stretched to the to the breaking point, and now this thing flares up again. It's uh, it's tough for them. We are talking with Wayne Brecken from the Kids Medical Services. Wayne Brecken is the CEO, and you have given us a lot of information to chew on. One last thing, though, before you go, um, maybe some advice. Just what, what, how can we walk around around the world without being scared and yet still be protected? Yeah, I, you know, I think I think that um, what's what is going to happen, and and uh, and is already happening across Florida is. Um, organizations are starting to uh, mandate 
vaccination as a condition of employment. Um, there are a number of hospitals already, Holy Cross in Fort Lauderdale, Sacred Heart in Pensacola, the Baptist Health in Jacksonville, um, Johns Hopkins All Children's, and more have mandated uh, uh, the vaccine. And that's all started happening in the last week. Um, so I think, you know, I think w once you start to take that um, that uh, decision-making process um, uh, away from people having to constantly agonize over it, and it just gets down to um, if I want to continue to um, work at a specific organization, I'm going to have to get vaccinated. And uh, um, that, I think that's just going to start happening with uh, not only hospitals, uh, but, uh, but businesses across the board, not the least of which reason is that the, you know, the people who are unvaccinated end up, um, as we talked about earlier, frequently admitted to the hospital. And the cost of, of, uh, of taking care of them is, is extraordinary and a significant burden on businesses and the community. You guys do well down in the South Florida area with Kids Medical Services, and I hope to talk to you again, Wayne. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Florida Roundtable, a news and public affairs presentation of the Florida News Network. The views and opinions expressed during this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of this station's management, ownership, or sponsors. For questions or comments, write to Florida Roundtable at fnnonline.net.